listen to the Guitar Heroes podcast. Good evening, everybody, and uh, and welcome to episode 11 of the Guitar Heroes podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm joined tonight by Mr. Phil Walker. Reluctantly. <laughs> Reluctantly? Yeah, sorry. Sorry, guys. Yeah, reluctant. Explain I'm reluctantly yourself. here today. Yeah. Why? Why? Well, do you want to... Oh, do you know what? I'm just going to get it over with. Cue the music. Phil's rent. Phil's rent. Um, yeah, I'm I'm reluctantly here, guys, tonight because um, it's Tuesday night, and it's quite a special time of year for me. And I'm here doing a podcast when I should be watching Chris Packham's Winter Watch. I'm not. I'm here <laughs> talking about stupid guitars and stupid amplifiers and things like that when I should be watching Beavers and Badgers. I don't know what to say to that, other than, I, oh I'm dear. I'm speechless. <laughs> and uh, now I'm going to have to watch it on BBC Catch-Up, and it was not the same. It's not <laughs> the same as watching it live. Well, um, well, it's a pleasure to have you, as always. Thanks for showing up. And yeah, whatever. Um, Who else is here? <laughs> and I'm also joined by Mr. Chris Taylor. That's how I feel. It sounds like we're in for quite a rough ride tonight with Phil, so let, let's be kind to him. That's got to be <laughs> that's got to be a Guitar Heroes record for the earliest Phil's rant <laughs> ever. But that's it. Podcast. It's over with. It was, it's <laughs> only short, and it, it's, it's like this is well, it's me, isn't it? Short and over with quickly. <laughs> I think you could run with a spin-off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Phil Walker yeah, yeah. podcast coming soon. It's just you Short ranting about <laughs> just ranting about <laughs> woodland creatures and <laughs> I might I might start a new series of one word podcast. You know, like the, the, that's some really nice music that comes in. And welcome to tonight's podcast. Bod <laughs> <laughs> Phil Walker's Guide to the English Dictionary. <laughs> just yeah. a different word every week. Yeah. Booze. Anyway, moving on. So, uh, theme for this evening. Cast your minds back a few weeks, month or a month or so now. We did a, mm. a Desert Island Discs episode where we took a close look at some 50s music. Mm. We thought we'd return to that theme tonight because it seemed to go down quite well. And we thought we would tackle the 1960s. So, we are the castaways and we've hopefully come prepared this evening with a few choices of uh, some 60s guitar music that was both significant to us but also significant to the development of the guitar in the wider sense. Um, and a little bit of background on the 1960s. And boy, what a decade. What a decade. I have been well and truly down the rabbit hole on this one. Speaking and, um, of rabbits. Mm. Speaking <laughs> of rabbits. I'm, I'm, I'm missing watching a rabbit barrow tonight. <sighs> you ruined my intro then I was It'll in a be flow a long podcast I was in no, a flow I, I, then Go on, yeah, flow So yeah, we're the castaways And uh, we, we've had to pick a couple of tracks That hopefully It'd be interesting to see As with the 1950s episode If any of us have doubled up on anything Because, you know yes, we, w yeah. we do have a lot of crossover tastes When it comes to guitar music And also we all play in the same show Which maybe we're going to cover Some of those artists tonight But yeah, what what the first things first before we get into the music? What a decade! I was just on Such Wikipedia for three hours this afternoon, just delving into everything that happened in the sixties. And man, what a time to be alive! So, uh, on that note, Phil, how was it? Yeah, it was great. Well, they didn't call it the swinging sixties for nothing. I tell you what, yeah. are you on about the eighteen sixties or the nineteen sixties? <laughs> <1960s? laughs> 
Because both were wicked, let me tell you. Let me just I've I've made some notes. I've come I've come prepared tonight. So the sixties, this was the decade that gave us obviously the rise of John F. Kennedy and also the demise of John F. Kennedy. Um Interestingly, there was a there was a divide between the sixties as a chronological decade and the sixties as in the movement, the sixties. And most pe- most websites that I sort of came across today seem to indicate that the sixties, the idea of the swinging sixties and free love and all that, actually kind of started after the assassination of JFK, mm. which I thought was an interesting point because here you had um, obviously a a pioneering leader and someone who was pushing a lot of new radical ideas and the world was moving out of the times of war and we were all hoping for peace and then the tragedy in Dallas, Texas occurred and I think think it just, it made people look at life a little bit differently. So in the 60s, you've got things happening such as the Vietnam War. You've got, again, the rise of Martin Luther King speaking out for, uh, you know, uh, black rights and then also sadly being assassinated you've got the cuban missile crisis in 62 you've got um civil rights act of 64 which um outlawed racial segregation in america you've got the berlin wall going up you've got feminist um uh, feminist movements gay rights movements you've got all this happening you've got the space race you know the us against um against the soviet union ending in the uh moon landing whether you believe in that or not in 69 i just think man so much of uh, society does affect the way move music moves as well you know um you know it has uh music has the potential to change a mood and encourage a different behavior and really has the power to culturally and emotionally influence our society and as time progresses, uh, we, we see a difference in the way music is made as well. And obviously, we saw that hugely with uh, the British invasion heading over to the States, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, that was um, kind of where I was coming. I was looking at the, the, the background, the context for all of this, because obviously, when you get an idea of what's going on in the world, you can maybe understand the music a little bit more. So after the 50s, the world had largely recovered in an economic sense from World War II. Um, Europe had kind of rebuilt itself and they had a massive economic boom and there was the rise of the middle classes and people were suddenly able to afford modern technology like TVs and instruments and things like that. But over in the States, you had what was known as the death of rock and roll. So as in the song American Pie, the day the music died, the end of the 1950s and their music scene changed quite significantly. They they left behind the days of Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and all that, and they moved into kind of a more, um, I don't know, safe, poppy, nice culture for a while. And it was actually, as far as I can tell, up to us Brits to bring it back with the British invasion. And man, were we involved. That was a good time to be British, that sort of 63, 64 period onwards. You look at all of the big names in that period, and it's like, we were on a roll. We were on a roll. And not only that, we <laughs> the Vox AC30. <laughs> How British is that? Yes. I had to get that in. That's the best thing to come out of the 60s, their Vox AC30. Yeah, it's appeared on most, like, if not all records, isn't it? Either that or a Fender amp or something. But yeah, the Vox AC30 was the sound of the 60s, in my opinion. And mm. uh used to have one, Phil. I, I've never owned one myself. Yeah, I've had one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Have you ever had an original or has it just been like a reissue nope. model? No, I had um, 
uh, oh, what do they call it? C C C C two. Is that is that what they are? C C. Yep. We should know yeah, that. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The Fox yeah. C C two. Um, it was okay. It was all right. It it wasn't really an AC thirty to be honest. It, it it was okay. It was as heavy as an AC thirty, but it wasn't like. And I've played through um a, a, f- a couple of original ones, and um, yeah, it's a completely different animal. Um, but. I know somebody who has got um, two or three original 60s AC-30s and uh, still gigs them. <laughs> so that's, that's cool. I was fortunate enough to be loaned, uh, I think it's a 65 AC-30 that my uncle has had for many years and he let me look after it for a while while he was moving um, around the country. Wow. And yeah, man, what an amp, what an amp. I remember the smell of it almost as much as anything mm-hmm. else. It just, you clunk, turned it on. Have you seen that video of Brian May? He did like a tuition video back in the day. I used he has to, have to keep Starlex, yeah. That's the one, yeah. And he has to turn his amp <laughs> on and off every time he wants to play a lick because it's so yeah. noisy. It goes clunk. Yeah. I remember this AC30 making that noise and the smell. But um, one day it picked up Spanish radio. I was <laughs> sat playing oh. away, noodling away. And then over the crackle of it, you sort of just got these wafts of some sort of Spanish radio station. It was It was quite weird. Two Quite three weird. years ago, <laughs> I was up at Yamaha headquarters, and um, Martin Adam, uh, he's, uh, he's he's a great guy, and he he collects a lot of vintage amps. And we were in the uh, guitar workshop one day, um, just chatting away, and we I got talking about AC thirties, and he just disappeared. And then he came back with we wheeling this trolley, and on it was an original sixties. I think it was a copper top AC thirty. Wow! And I went what? <laughs> you, well, said, where, have, where have you been? <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's got Marshall plexes and all sorts in there. And we plugged this AC30 in and, oh, my God, my, my hair fell off. It was amazing. It, it was just an amazing experience, you know. To you, you never get that. I mean, on records, you'll hear an AC30, but unless you're in the same room, as mm. an original AC30, you're right, Lee, the smell, the crackles. The In fact, he said to me, um, it, it, it fired up, warmed up for a little while, fired it up and, you know, started playing through. Um, and he said, oh, it must like you. He says, it doesn't always work first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's another true fact about them there. I think at any amp of that age of, you, you know, they're temperamental at best. But mm. man, those mm. AC30s, like Brian May has said many times, they distort in a very particular, a very unique way that is very mm. pleasant. A lot of amps of that time, if you think you're coming out of like the tweeds, uh, the tweed fenders into the blackface fenders, they had a different type of distortion. But the AC30s, when you wound them up, they went from a really nice clean to mm. a very smooth, very rich uh, distortion. And yeah, killer amps. And a little story about that. My dad used to have um, an AC30 and he... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was playing in, um, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, like a town hall back then where they had big, big dancers, you know. And to get the kinks sound, you, you know, you really got me that, that you know, type mm. sound. Everybody wanted to get that and couldn't. And, uh, and the speakers blew in his AC30 one night and he got that sound and he was like, what, that's it, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, interesting point, actually, if I just check my notes here. Interesting point about that song, You Really Got Me. Um, that tone that uh, Dave Davis got on that was, um, uh, it wasn't a Vox, it was some, I forget the brand of the, of the amp, but essentially he did take a pen knife to it, 
and and that and actually literally sliced the cone, and that's where he got the distortion from, because that was 1964. You really got me, and mm. it was one of the earliest examples of that. You know, a, a proper distortion sound, and it was just him. I think he said he just got frustrated with the amp one day. I think I read that in an interview, and just literally <coughs> stabbed it and went hang about. <laughs> what yeah. have I landed on here? What he could afford to experiment, though. My dad was really upset. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the aforementioned <laughs> British invasion, sort of 63, 64. Interesting to note when I was reading into that as well. So you've got the rise of Beatlemania and obviously the Beatles just exploding all around the world and yeah. taking everything that is British and everything that's rock and roll right back into to people's lives. <laughs> An interesting point that I found online, I didn't know this, was... Literally a month or two after B- the Beatles exploded, Chuck Berry was released from jail. <laughs> <laughs> he'd, he'd done it. I don't know what he was in for, but he'd been in, been inside for two and a half years. And it was almost like he, he was <laughs> in jail, locked away whilst rock and rollers supposedly died. And there was lots of pop and surf music and stuff happening. And then the uh, Beatles explode, rock and roll's back and they let Chuck out. <laughs> It's I like, think we know why he was in. I think we do know why he was in jail, but we should probably not mention it on this podcast. Oh. <laughs> I don't like to look too deep into that side of him because it ruins <laughs> <laughs> it. You know. Anyway, so there we go. That is the sixties culminating in obviously Woodstock, nineteen sixty-nine, landing on the moon. Man, what a decade to be alive! But let's get on to the music. So, who wants to go first? Shall I? I've said enough, so go on, Phil. Else. You go. Okay, you go. I'm, I'm going to go first because I really want to. I really want to get this guy out and this band um, before anybody else does. <laughs> okay. okay, and you can probably see from the color of my guitar who it's going to be. Um, what is that? Pink, Phil. It's I have no it, idea. Yeah, it's a Hello Kitty guitar. Do you like it? <laughs> oh, where'd you get that, Argos? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Click and collect. Amazing. Um, yeah, my greatest guitar hero of all time, without a doubt, the reason I play guitar, Mr. Hank B. Marvin from The Shadows. Way. Yeah. I mean, nice, that nice. that guy changed music. He changed the sound of the guitar. Um, it, he had the first Fender Stratocaster ever to be brought into this country. It was Cliff Richard that imported the uh, Fender Strat. It was... They were listening to um, James Burton, and they thought, "Oh, let's you know that uh, let's get the top of the range. That's surely what he must be playing. He was playing a Telecaster. Um, they ordered a Strat, thinking he would have been playing that. Um, so this this Fender Stratocaster arrived, and all the early Shadows and early Cliff and Shadows um, songs, all the solos and everything was all played on the, the very first guitar to hit the English shores. So that's that's cool, isn't it? That's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, he's uh, he's I mean for, you know innovative for the time. I mean his use of echo and everything, and then the 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 whammy bar, the tremolo arm, and apparently the strings were so heavy on the guitars back then that to you know to get the vibrato, he developed this style with the tremolo arm, because um, so it was nigh on impossible to bend strings wow. uh, on the guitar that came through, and that's how he developed the style. Um, and the echo as well, and and actually I've got a, I've got something set up here on the guitar. Just uh, uh, I'm using the HX Stomp with some um, nice modelled echo units on there. But he okay. he started out using the Miyazzi, um, and then I think he went on to the Binson Echorec, which I used to have a Binson Echorec too. Um, it's worth a fortune now. It, honestly, it, it's such a great thing. And then he went on to the uh, Roland RE301, I think, um, through the 
through the 70s and 80s. And uh, I think he now uses um, what they call echoes of the past. Somebody went and, you know, sampled all the echo sounds. So it's digital but analog, if you know what I mean. I used to yeah. have, um, I forget the name of the pedal, but I used to have a real hardcore group of um, Shadows customers because mm. Hank is, he's one of those players that, you know, particularly uh, guys of a certain age seem to really just, I get, Me. I can understand because he, <laughs> well, no, actually, uh, if I'm honest, um, older than you Phil because I guess they really grew up with him and he yeah. was that icon there wasn't there wasn't many guitar icons around I mean Apache was 1960 yeah. so yeah. not many guitar icons to choose from at that time and but I had a, a few customers that came in with a delay pedal that was essentially like a shadows delay pedal pre-programmed with all the songs so you yeah. could literally just select you know Apache Foot yeah. tapper, whatever it was, and it would just all be preloaded for you. That was pretty. Yeah, cool. they, they did it in their Digitech pedals, and they did it in the Elise's Quadriverb. Um, ah. and yeah, I think I think they do it in different ones now. But yeah, they call it uh, Echoes of the Echoes from the Past. I think it was, and yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, anyway, I've I've programmed this into my HX Stomp, um, and so the difference in echoes that you know that the, the shadows did use, um, which helped along with mm. the sound. So I'll just play a little couple of. So it kind of gets quite, I'd say lost, the echo. You don't really know what the echo is. You know there's some in there, but when you play yeah. like something like this. Yeah. You can yeah, really yeah. hear what's going on, like yeah. a multi-head thing going on. And then for Apache, um, they've got this real out-of-time multi-head type echo, which if I just play... And then if you do the gallop of Apache, it really comes into its own. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, sound, that sounds great. And, uh, you know, that's one of the, the great things about the stomp, isn't it? It's so flexible and you can... I think it's part mm. of the fun. Rather than, you know, I'm the sort of guy who'd rather try and fiddle around with effects and try and get close to it myself rather than have it preloaded for me. I think it's yeah. part of the fun, isn't it, you know? And yeah. I think the, the the stomp offers that is is so good, and does it yeah. does it give you all the the delays and reverbs uh, that you need to create those sounds, Bill? Yeah, Would yeah. You say? I mean, originally I I used um, the HD five hundred in the guitar show uh, HD five hundred X, and uh, I, I can't remember what they, they were called in there. But when we went to the Helix, it was a completely different platform. So I had to start um, looking at you know, rebuilding all the delays again, well, all the sounds again. And when I found um, I found a couple of tube delays, and I, what I did is just I put two together, and then um, I was like, yeah, that's okay, that's all right, that works. And then I found the, um, oh, what's that called? It's a multi-head anyway, I'll, I'll have a look in a second. Uh, it's a multi-head, and that way you, you, you can have, um, I think it's got four heads in there, and you can decide which heads you want on. Um, you know, the, there's the wow, the flutter, everything that you, you sort of get on these old machines. Um, mm. It'd be really interesting to hear them side by side, actually. You know, because you just, I mean, I listen to this and and I think, wow, that sounds really cool. That's pretty, pretty darn accurate in my ears. Maybe, you know, obviously you've got a, so you've got a, a you know, a Benson Eckerack there. You're going to get also, I mean, that's quiet, but a Benson yeah. Eckerack, I know you've had one. You've got the disc spinning around and the same with the, 
you know, the uh, Roland Space Echoes. You know, you hear the, you can hear the join in the tapes, not on the mm. Echorec, that was a disc, but uh, the tape goes across the heads, it goes, you know, the join in the tape as the tape gets older and, you know, you get all that, which you don't get with the digital stuff. The, the, what was it called? The Catlin Bread Echorec was always a great, a really good replication of the Binson. I've got the, the Strymon El Capistan on my board. And yeah, that, that tape echo thing that I guess really started with Hank is just epic and was used obviously by so many people after, but. Um, I've been listening to loads of Shadows recently, actually, on my record player, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, just just awesome. And, and exactly like you demonstrated, Phil, I love the way that in so many of their songs, he'll play the main the main melody or whatever it is in a more fluid kind of style. And then there'll be a B melody or, or the same melody again, but he plays it in that muted style. So you yeah. get the real echo that jumps out yes. at you then. You get the ping pong type. So cool. So cool. Especially yeah. when you think that that was... 60 years ago they were doing that it's um yeah, yeah it's crazy i mean for it, you know b- back in 1960 when they did apache it, i mean it, it was you know i think it was, it was number one wasn't it it, it it was an amazing piece of music i mean now it sounds really tame and young people of today would be like you know you think you lost your mind listening to that sort of stuff but back then it was like so advanced you know and wasn't there some yeah. um controversy as well that they actually knocked cliff off the number one spot because yeah. he, w- you know, he they were the backup band, and then they sort of went yeah. their own way. Cliff was aware that they were doing that, and then there was a time where they both put out records, and the Shadows actually, you know, pipped him to number one, which must have been yeah. interesting. But yeah, well, um, there's actually a good, uh, a good little documentary on. Uh, I think it's still on iPlayer. Oh, it's certainly on YouTube, and it's. Uh, I think it's the Shadows at sixty, um, and it's. Uh, yeah, I think it's about an hour long, and there's Cliff talking on there, and and they were all saying that you know the. They wanted the shadows to do well. There was none mm. of this. Oh, my backing band have left. There's none right. of that type of thing. That they, they, they were all, they were all in the same camp. You know, they were all fighting in the same from the same corner. You know, and the, yeah. there was none of this uh, falling out or anything like that. It was all done in, uh, you know, done in good spirits and and for the for the for the good of music. You know. Well, it's a it's a fun bit that we get to do in the show every mm. night. So when we can get back to gigging, definitely come yeah. out and see us. And check out the shadows part because, yeah, it's good fun. Especially the choreography. <laughs> I was going to say, there may or may not be some <laughs> shadows footwork involved as well. Oh, there will. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> Lovely. All right. Well, nomination then for... Well, is there a particular song that you want to nominate or is it just, just Hank and the oh, Shadows? Well, th- there's, there's, there's lots of Shadows songs that I, that I really like. Um uh, I, I don't have a particular wonderful land. I think is one of my one of my favourites. It has to be um, mm. the w- the one that I played first, the demo first. Of then, yeah, wonderful land. I think was probably one of the first shadow songs I learned to play, and certainly um, when I was uh, when I was probably about twelve, thirteen years old, my mum and dad bought me a Watkins copycat. Um, nice. And 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 you know, getting the shadow sound on that, and yeah, so it was it was it was uh, probably wonderful land. Then my favourite, I will say. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Love it. Right. Hank Marvin. Great. That's a great nomination. He's in. Chris, I'm looking at you. What okay. have you got for us? Okay, well, gentlemen, I'm going to take you back to 1964, um, December the 21st, with the song My Girl by The Temptations. Nice. I okay, didn't see um, that one coming. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, for me, I've, I've always loved this song and... Um, it, and obviously it has that, that particular guitar intro at the beginning. Um, 
So let me uh, let me just dial up. So I was just looking around at how this was recorded, and um, I'm, I'm familiar with uh, Joe Messina, who was uh, one of the other guitar players in in the group, the, the Funk Brothers, this is. And um, uh, they were the band, a session band, that used to record all the tracks for for The Temptations, um, Aretha Franklin, and all the Motown artists, to be honest. Um, uh, a fantastic band. And Joe Messina used the telly for all the chords in the song. You know, um, one... And then over the top, you've got the, uh, the classic guitar riff. It's a great riff. And uh, actually, that's played on a uh, ES-175, which I, I don't have. Um, uh, but all the guitars weren't actually used, uh, plugged into an amp. They were all direct into the desk, uh, which I think... Um, yeah, it, it sounded... I, I, I couldn't really pick that out from listening to it, but obviously it does sound very direct and... So I've actually just plugged in my HX stomp here. I've taken the amp off. I've actually just put a studio preamp on with an EQ just to brighten it up. And um, what we got on the bridge pickup here. Just sounds great, doesn't it? And it's just mm. one of those all-time classic riffs that just, I think, stands the test of time. It, to me, doesn't seem to date or age in any way. It's just full of soul and, yeah, just uh, that. that's my nomination. And... Um, and if uh, you want to kind of look more into this as well, there's a great documentary called Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Okay. And uh, it takes you through the whole history of Motown, how it all started, and takes you back to where the uh, these songs were recorded, which I think was in a garage of a house. So a really confined space. <laughs> and yeah. this is where they spent all their time. And and I, and writing these songs, I think, was a big deal at the time. They used to uh, sit down around, uh, have the stereo on, the speakers, and would listen to the song and go... I think the quote is, uh, would you buy a sandwich or buy this song? And if the, everyone <laughs> said, I'll buy a sandwich, then uh, they'll throw the song out. <laughs> but uh, well, this one turned out to be worth more than a bit of bread. So, um, yeah. So there's there's my nomination. Um, Instantly recognizable, that riff, though, isn't it? It's, you know, soon as soon as you hear that riff, you, you just, it you know, it clicks that song. Yeah, yeah. Phil, have you got, uh, you got a free, your 335 there? Is that behind? Is that behind um, you? It's behind me somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you want to grab that and have a go at playing the riff, just because. Um, I uh, see if you can get close to the sound. There's so many cool sounds in that era, isn't there? Because I think the hardware that they were using in the studios was so good. Like you said, Chris, just plugging straight into the board. There's lots of tales of you know the Beatles and lots of bands doing that at the time. And yeah, you know you've yeah. got desks like the Neve stuff that was around and. And it was it's just a different world. Like that equipment had such a big effect on the sound almost as much as the instruments did, didn't it? Yeah, well well I know um they uh, they all used to record in one room, I believe. So yeah. like, you know, having the guitars DI'd took out that those problematic factors of the guitar amps being too loud over the drum kit, which I, I think only had like one mic on, on the kit or something or two mics or, or yeah. something. It was very limited to the amount of uh, microphones they had. So um, it goes to show how good a musicians they all were because they all had to dynamically play within each other's range. And Oh, yeah. Man, oh, it's yeah. just just a whole nother level. Uh, and I, I think they were, like, knocking out six songs a day, six <laughs> hits a day or something. It's but, uh, but, yeah, as far as the Funk Brothers go, in my opinion, one of the greatest bands of all time. Just um, they were, but you know, they were coming up with these songs. You know, they were coming up with these riffs and mm. it just... 
you know a hit a hit making machine they were they, they were man. machine yeah <laughs> so phil uh this song yeah. uh was played on, on the bridge pickup uh tone slightly rolled off yeah i've got and um, these are from my notes um and direct into the desk i don't know if you could just pull up a uh like a studio it's, preamp or something and kind take of off. direct as i've got it now have, have a listen at this so you think it's pretty close yeah yeah, it's not far off, is it? No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just yeah, it's a, a great riff and yeah, and th- that continues all the way through the song and I love the the bass in it. It's got that um what's it? Let's see. Yeah. And all the harmonies as well, vocal harmonies as well, I think, you know, it's oh, just Oh man. Man, well, that, that's, a, that's a whole different world as well. But the 60s is just so rich for music all around, isn't it? I mean, mm. we're looking at guitar parts, really. But when you get into other stuff like vocal harmonies, again, there was no auto-tune. There was none of that. So like you said, Chris, they had to be, you know, really shit-hot musicians. But they also had to have all that side of it down as well. Otherwise, mm. they, you know, yeah. you'd ruin a take. And, but Amazing. everything had to be about the song. This is this is the thing. It's all about the song. Everything you're playing has to complement the music and... It has to complement the singers as well. You need to be out their way when they're singing, you know, and it's all about the vocal harmonies at this time, isn't it? Sorry, yeah. Definitely. What's that you've got there, Phil? That's <laughs> <laughs> bo- <laughs> a bottle of pot. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me it's number two. Well, well, kind of, yeah. I opened it just before we started because I, the last bottle only filled the glass up. So um, I had to open a new bottle, Yeah. It's to help him get over the fact that he's missing hedgehogs on TV. Oh, you just reminded me. I was getting <laughs> into this podcast. Oh, no. no oh now, I'm, now my mind's just going to be on Beaver all the rest of it. You're listening to the Guitar Heroes podcast. I guess it's my turn. Um, and it wouldn't, wouldn't really seem fit if we didn't feature this guy. <laughs> so see if you know this one. I'm going to play what, two notes. Uh, I knew you were going to do Hank Marvin as well. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Where would we be without the big man himself, Jimmy Bernie Hendrix? Marston. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Bernie Marston. <laughs> so yeah, obviously, talking guitars and talking sixties, we could not not mention God himself, Jimmy Hendrix, and that was of course Purple Haze, which was his second single released in March uh, March of nineteen sixty seven, and it reached number three in the UK chart. Do you it's know what his first single was? Oh. um... I think I do, but I can't remember. It's not what you're expecting it to be, is it? It's not, no. Well, I'll give you a clue. It's not actually his song. It was a cover. Oh, was it Hey Joe? It was Hey Joe. Mm. Yeah, he didn't, so he didn't in, write uh, that, did he? No. He didn't like it. No, in, in 66, um, his uh, his manager or whoever it was at the time urged him to um, to put out Hey Joe. They thought it was going to be a big hit. Um, and Jimmy did it, but he felt like it didn't really represent him. Uh, there's a quote of him saying that, yeah, that record isn't really us, and we're we're working on some stuff that's going to represent, you know, 
what we where we want to take this. And uh, Purple Haze was like the official first Jimi Hendrix experience. Uh, oh, I remember original. listening to that. Mm. Yeah, and uh, just just to imagine what that must have sounded like in '67. But to come back to my point earlier about the Brits, and now I've got some stick for saying stuff like this online before. We did a video at Absolute once where we went into the history of the Les Paul, and I made a comment that had it not been for the British invasion, the Les Paul might have died out because really, when you got to the mid '60s, it was gone. Gibson had discontinued it, and it was only because of Jimmy Page. Jeff Beck and Clapton and people like that playing that old guitar from the 50s. I think that's a valid comment, to be honest. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm. Well, you know, in the case of Jimmy, it was um, it was Chaz, Chaz Chandler of The Animals that uh, really saw him and said, hang on, this guy's onto something here, and he made his move into management. But at the time, Jimmy wasn't having much success in the States, not relative to where he eventually went. And, of course, it was him moving to London and um, you know, meeting with uh, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding and forming the experience, but it was really London that kind of nurtured him. So I, I kind of see that as, although he's an American, it's kind of a, a you know a win for the home team there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, back to Purple Haze. Apparently, Chaz heard him playing that riff and uh, and said, "You need to make something more of that." It wasn't originally going to be a track on the record, but it was something that he urged him to do, and. Apparently, Jimmy finished writing it in the dressing room of a show that he was playing that evening. He just pieced it together. And the band didn't even know it until they went into the studio. Jimmy taught it to them on the day. And uh, I think they got it in, I think it was like third take or something. And that was done. The core track. And then Jimmy and Chaz spent weeks and weeks going over, doing all the overdubs which again, for me, is why it is such an epic track and such a pioneering track, because not only is it the introduction of Jimi Hendrix and the introduction of that whole wave of psychedelic rock that kind of followed it, but it's also pushing the boundaries in in terms of technicalities because they messed with things like speeding up the tape, slowing down the tape. You've got reverse sounds. It's the first example of um, the Roger Mayer Octavia, you know, the octave that he uses in the co- in the solo. That's the first example. They even did things like they played the track back through headphones and moved it around the microphone to create kind of swirling effects <laughs> before we had, like, you know, full stereo, you know, f- control over that, that aspect of stereo recording. And, of course, that intro itself features the devil's music. It is the diminished fifth. That sound... We wouldn't have heavy metal as we know it if, if, if we didn't have the diminished fifth. And I can't think of an earlier example in rock music that really we, we you know, we had that thrown in our faces. <laughs> but yeah, everything about the track, you know, Jim, the, the solo. We've got that. Fuzz face and everything kicking off. It's... It's classic Jimmy, and it laid the way for what was to come with the following two albums. And at the time, to pick that up and listen to it, 1967, you must have just been like, whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. Mind blown. Un- unlike any other rock guitar players at the time as well, he was always highlighting chord changes in the song, like you just demonstrated there, mm. Lee. Those chords that are moving, so what we got is like a, a G. And he's moving up with the with the lead lines following yeah. those chords. And, you know, a lot of the time, 
Uh, I'm not going to knock anyone for doing it, but you know they would just stick in one position on the guitar, just you know playing licks that they they've learned or practiced. And but Jimmy was being very musical with and had directions to his solos. And well, even I think that I remember hearing that solo. It was one of those tracks that when you first start learning guitar, you really kind of get into. And I remember I think I was buying like Kerrang magazines, and they were trying to teach you how to play that. And I always remember that solo. Just it it never really made sense to me because he was using. You know, he does all. He does all. <laughs> it's kind of sounds a bit weird. He's got these weird tonalities. He's using like mixolydians and things in there. He's got the octave on. He's got the fuzz, and it made it sound kind of otherworldly in amongst other kind of blues rock riffs and stuff. Mm. And uh, I mean, that's that's now hearing it. And that was when I was listening to it for the first time in the probably late nineties, two thousands. But hearing it back then in the day like i just can't i can't imagine what it would have been like it was Marmite, so different. i should imagine <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, to be honest I, yeah i would, yeah, I would think it would be like you know after everything being so um yeah it was it a lot of, yeah the swinging 60s yeah there was a lot of new stuff happening in the 60s but then for someone like a freak like Jimi hendrix to come along and do all that yeah you know, I, I expect it was like this guy needs committing or this guy is God. <laughs> but know, it's almost like, it's, he's almost like, um, you know, the Steve Vai of our day. Yes, definitely. You know, someone yeah. pushing boundaries. And I mean, we spoke about, you know, um, guitar icons, mm. and, but Jimmy obviously being the one because he pushed boundaries and took chances. And I don't think he let outside influence affect his music. He just went with what he wanted, what he could hear in his head and what felt good to him. And, and well, I there's a, there's a quote from Clapton. Um, I think it was the first time Clapton got to see Jimmy, li Jimmy live. Jimmy came to a gig in London that uh, Clapton was playing. At, I think it was like London Polytechnic or something like that. And um, Jimmy asked to get up on stage and do a couple of tracks. And he did. And Clapton just said he just stood back and watched. And he saw Jimmy represent lots of different styles of music in a very short amount of time. And mm. also throw in these tricks. He played with his teeth. He put the guitar behind his head. But he said... Unlike other people who did it, did those things in a very gimmicky, very performance kind of way, he said there seemed to be some sort of strange uh, naturalness to Jimmy that it, it came from somewhere else. And I think the famous mm -hmm. line was, and, and from that day, my life changed completely or, or my guitar playing changed. Whatever, whatever happened that day, Clapton just couldn't look back once he'd seen Jimmy. So it must mm -hmm. have been quite, quite groundbreaking because Clapton was already, you know, a name yeah. for himself at that time. Mm. Yeah, nice. Yeah, mm. I, I, I purposely. No, Lee, that's, uh, that was a great nomination. Yeah, I purposefully kept away because I thought one of you two is going to do Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> well, I, I almost did, but then I thought, oh man, if we all have the same thought and nobody nominates Jimmy, this is just horrendous. We can't, we can't <laughs> not do that. I, I so. just, I knew Lee was going to run with Hendrix, so I, I stayed. With, I, I would have gone with Purple Haze because I remember listening to that when I was younger, and I, I lit, I listened to it on repeat. I just, I couldn't understand what like you said Lee I, I couldn't understand what I was listening to and you know and e I, even I just the use of you know the Hendrix chord I, I remember just playing that because it was the first kind of weird chord that I learned you sort of went through your open chords your bar chords and power chords and then all of a sudden you tried to learn Purple Haze and you're hearing <laughs> it's like huh mm -hmm. and then you get into you know Jimmy's way of thumbing over the top of the neck and you get all of those <laughs> Mm. 
you know, all those things that he did, it's like, whoa, man, mm. it's just completely. Yeah. He's a he's a unique player because you take something like Little Wing, you know, mm. the intro is is all chordal, but it sounds like a guitar solo at the same time, and he has this magic of fusing just rhythm and lead at, at any given moment, you know, and yeah, just so unique and always push boundaries. So, man, I, that was a great nomination and. Yeah. I've got to be honest. Over the years of the guitar show, we've done we've done a fair few Hendrix songs, and one that's stayed in the whole time has been Little Wing, um, purely because it's my favourite song to play. I think <laughs> I love that song. I, I love that. It song. is great. Like it's it's a great point in the show as well because it brings the dynamic down for a bit, doesn't it? And it's got mm. that ballad aspect to it. It's it's great yeah. fun. Yeah, great yeah. fun. Well, we'll take Hendrix off the list then. There you go. There we go. Back to you, Mr. Walker. Back to me. Okay. Well, the people at home can't see this, but you guys can. I've um, I've got my double neck on right now. Um, purely, there's only one neck I'm interested in at the moment. Um, okay. And I'm just going to play a riff and see if you guys know what this is. Okay. ideas I'm going to play another one hang on then okay. see if you This is all sounding very familiar, and obviously... I've got you stumped, haven't I? You're yeah, making okay. use of the 12-string... You're, 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 you're going to go with the Beatles, because they use the 12-string Rickenbacker, but <coughs> you don't have a 12-string... You know no, it's not the Beatles, because I thought one of you guys might be touching on that as well. It's actually the Searchers. The ah, Searchers. Yeah, okay. The, the, the Searchers, um, which obviously, um, yeah, the, the British Invasion, was uh, a Merseybeat group which was part of the British invasion. Obviously, it was Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers, and, you know, who actually died um, died this week. Was it? Oh, it was last week, sorry. Yeah, so oh man, it's terrible. I'm, I, I love, um, what's the song? I Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying. I remember listening, my nan used mm. to listen to that when I was a kid, and man, just th- that music is so good. <coughs> you know, yeah, oh, yeah. But uh, the w- a big part of the 60s for me was the 12-string sound, because it, 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 was, it was a new instrument, like Chris said, uh, the the Rickenbacker, you know, used by the Beatles. Um, I know the Searchers used um, they used the Burns Double Six back then. Um, I saw a recent video of the Searchers, which obviously there's uh, you know the different different incarnations of the band over the years. But I think they were using yeah. a, a Rickenbacker. Uh, and then there's the one of my favourite guitars of all time, and I am going to own one of these. Hopefully not too far in the future, um, which is a Fender Electric 12-string from 1966. Um, awesome. I, I found one on uh, a website the other day um, in, in white with the tortoise guard. Bill, oh. what's, the, uh, what, what's the website, mate? It was um, it's ATB <laughs> Guitars. Are you going to order it for me for Christmas? <laughs> no. I thought it's going to set, set you back a fair few quid, I would have thought. Um, <laughs> y- yeah, not as much as you'd think. Um, because uh, the Fender Electric 12, I suppose they said Leo Fender was a bit late to the party when it came to 12 strings, because um, it had been done, you know, been done before. But uh, yeah, it, it was basically basically like a jazz master body. Um, it's a it's, it's that's quite a unique instrument with a he- hockey headstock and yeah, be- beautiful guitar. And it's it's one of the guitars on my bucket list that I'm going to own one of these days. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that that's it for me really. Um, just invasion of the 12 string if you like and the searchers awesome. was uh was a uh, quite a big uh 
big user of the 12 strings, certainly on those two yeah. big songs. And it just reminded me that I must get a Searcher's vinyl. Because uh, I, I was like, that's why I haven't got one of those. I was cause looking through my vinyl collection, you know, oh. wondering who to do for this podcast. And um, I was thinking of the searches, and I haven't actually got one. So I'm going to have to go and uh, hunt some searches vinyl now, I think. Love it. Right, okay. Um, well, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow suit. I'm going to carry on with this 12-string theme. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I'm going to dive into the Beatles. Way. Um, I'm only going to go with one song, obviously. Um, leaves uh, some more open for you, Lee, if you've, uh, if you've chosen one. But uh, this song released on the 9th of April, 1965. Unfortunately, I don't have a 12-string, and I can't even load a 12-string uh, um, block on my HX stump because I've run out of DSP. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> they've no, obviously brought in the trouble with digital gear. <laughs> they brought in the um, uh, the uh, the eight blocks, but unfortunately, I'm using up six. But it, you know, you have to. There is a bit of um, play there. You know, if you wanted to bring in something that's quite powerful, you have to sacrifice a few other things. But mm. uh, maybe uh, uh, Phil could probably um, uh, reiterate what I'm about to play. Uh, but this song is called "Ticket to Ride," oh. um, and hey. I, I, I've 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 always loved this song. There's a few moments in it which I'll try and pull on. Um, obviously, the intro is a big classic. Let's see. Um. <laughs> Oh, nice. So um, and uh, yeah, that was played on a Rickenbacker twelve string for a Vox. Um, so yeah, unfortunately I can't get the twelve string, but that's how the riff goes, and it's so it's so simple. It's just based around an open A major chord. Uh, third fingers released for that open B string, and it just gives you a bit of chime there. I think the twelve string gives you a ton of chime on that riff. It's an awesome sound, twelve yeah. string. Something like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the yeah. That's yeah. it. It's just op- um Yeah, but nice. yeah, that's on spot on, Phil. And it, yeah, it's for me such a great riff, and um, and there's also you know they were um musically pushing boundaries as well as the multi-tracking, and in the middle of the song, um, trying to think how to get there. Yeah. That's it. Uh, she, she's got a she's got a uh, here we go. Ride. We hit a G major seven chord. The Beatles using jazz. Come on, Phil, it's cool. Uh, <laughs> I don't really class the major seventh as jazz. To be fair. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Needs a few but they, but ninths and thirteenths thrown yeah. in there, doesn't it? But check Ooh. this out. There's a there's um it's the it's played like this. And here we're playing like um let me see what this is a uh, G major seven oh, sharp we thirteen. We've drifted into Chris's corner here. <laughs> there we go. But also um, coming Jazz out the uh, d- coming out the middle section, nice. we got the. Uh, that's it. That little lick there for me is absolute classic. Mm. Yeah, awesome. but yeah, that that song for me had so many cool elements. Um, I just really enjoy it, and you know, there's so many to choose from, but that one for me just stands out the most. The Beatles were on my list as well. Um, again, there's just too many songs to choose from, too many good mm. examples of great guitar. One for me was always um, I've probably got the wrong sound on for this, but. 
just that chord at the beginning. There's, of a, there's an interesting. Uh, so good. But do you know that was actually three chords played at once? Oh, oh was we it? We sh- yeah, we should have prepared that for today. That would have been one is just a basic G. Um, one plays up there. There's one does this like F open chord, and then there's and there's like a D sus four played. Oh, okay. One has to play a D sus four. Let's see if we can <laughs> all record this at the same <laughs> it's, time. It's going to be hideous. You're going to have to sync this up, Lee, but uh, we'll have to shout for and one does a D. I'll do the D sus four. I'll just do the power chords because I've got a thicker sound on here. And then one is just a basic G. Okay. I think. And just see right. how that's. Oh, one is um. Okay, let's just have one, right. two, three, four. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> I'll leave you to sync that up. See if yeah, the Beatles <laughs> have got nothing on us. Let's <laughs> <laughs> we'll see oh if you can sync that up, Lee. But also, you've got. Anyway, that that's oh, not my what's nomination. The other one as well by the Beatles. <laughs> Hang on. Okay. I'm in love with her and it's all right. What's the yeah? Uh, um, yeah I'm in love with her and I feel I feel fine. They had some Is amazing it? riffs, didn't they? I oh, like. Really um, did. What's the um, um? Yeah. Here comes the sun. Yeah. What about um? Come together. That was a 60s number, yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is. Oh, isn't yeah. it? Man. Oh, I did that. Oh, at least at least already played that one. Oh yeah. But also, um, this is um I think George Harrison was such an underrated guitar player, never really got the uh, the light that he deserved. And you take something like I saw a standing there, that Yeah. But yeah, it's specifically played here as well to get that nice brightness. And um, I think we need to do a Beatles podcast, don't we? Clearly, oh, let's let's do it. Okay. I'd really, like, I'd be in my element there, man. That'd be <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Chris, cracking nomination. We couldn't talk about sixties music without mentioning the Beatles. So there we go. So I guess it's back to me. And uh, yeah, and along the same lines, really. How could we talk about sixties music without going? <laughs> It's a white snake, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was torn. I really wanted to do this one. But I didn't want to embarrass myself by having to sing the drums. <laughs> but you did anyway. You just did it. I did. I did. <laughs> it is, of course, the mighty Led Zeppelin. Uh, and that was Whole Lot of Love from 1969 and Good Times, Bad Times from also from 1969. Now, there is the fact that I think is not discussed enough. Led Zeppelin 1 and Led Zeppelin 2 both released in the same year. And if you look at the tracks that are on those two albums, you've literally got classic after classic mm. and and just to get that, I mean, think about that. How many artists these days release two albums in one year yeah. and they be as groundbreaking as Zep 1 and 2? It's 
it's crazy. And obviously you've got so many things being uh, kind of pioneered there. You've got not just the guitar, but you've got Bonham, you've got the vocals, you've got the production technique, you've got Jimmy Page producing it. There were so many things happening at once that I almost feel like at the time it probably would have been just too much to take in. It also uh, cements your comment about a Brit bringing the Les Paul back, doesn't it? There you go. There you go. Perfect, Jimmy yeah. Page. It's weird to think that the Les Paul could have literally been lost to the history books because it was mm. discontinued. It was gone. Those guys were playing guitars that were at that point 10 years old. I mean, Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy Page recorded Whole Lot of Love with a 58 Les Paul when he recorded it in 69. Uh, in and that was a discontinued guitar. He came back in 69 probably because of Led Zeppelin and, you know, Clapton and so on. So A uh, Whole Lot of Love was the second Zepp single, um, although not in the UK, because interestingly, they didn't release singles in the UK. Um, the UK market had largely moved away from singles and moved to albums, and they weren't getting the recognition that they felt they deserved and the songs being a little bit longer. You think about A Whole Lot of Love and it's got that whole freeform breakdown section in the middle. That wasn't widely accepted by UK radio stations. So it was only the second single, but you could look at that first album and say that, well, there's probably like five or six singles there by today's standards. Uh, and these days, Radio 2, in a, in a, a vote they did with their, um, with their listeners, it was voted greatest guitar riff of all time. And of course, mm. famously used as well as the intro to Top of the Pops for many years. You heard <laughs> that. <laughs> And uh, a deceptively tricky little riff to play. I mean, really, by today's standards in terms of technicalities, it, you know, you might overlook it. But the key for me is that bend. So he's hitting two strings at once. He's hitting the D note on the A string and the open D and bending the, the D on the A string slightly sharp. So you get... You could argue maybe wasn't intentional, but that's kind of where that sound comes from. It wasn't a double track thing. There's probably a lot of things that weren't intentional that have ended up being uh, <laughs> yes you know, made yeah. made history. I just think that that era for Zeppelin, if you look at their history, obviously coming out of the Yardbirds, so um, Jimmy Page was already a well-established session player and already part of the Yardbirds at that time, which had also you know, Clapton had been part of Jeff Beck. And um, when the Yardbirds, when the Yardbirds kind of broke down, he, he needed other people to continue a tour that they had. So he, he found other musicians, which essentially became Led Zeppelin. He recruited John Paul Jones. And I think, um, I think uh, Robert Plant came next and then Plant recruited Bonham and they became the new Yardbirds and went on tour and actually demoed some early Zepp material on that tour before rebranding and becoming Led Zeppelin. But the first recording was entirely funded by Jimmy Page and their manager at the time. They had no label, they had nothing. It was just Jimmy Page and the vision that he had. They went into the studio and I think I think they paid something like 1,200 quid for that first album, which by today's standards was something like 30 grand. So you imagine stumping up 30 wow. grand of your own money with a new band that you've just formed and just knowing that it was gonna take off. And mm. it did. But interestingly, coming back to Whole Lot of Love, have you guys heard You Need Love by Muddy Waters? No. Or have you heard 
you need loving by the small faces. Because if you haven't, you need to check this out. It is basically bang on the vocal that Robert Plant sang. You hear it and and the the lyrics are like 80% the same. And obviously it came three years before Whole Lot of Love. And it actually went to court years later and... Uh, it kind of went in favour of the small faces and they settled out of court for an undisclosed sum because Robert Plant essentially admitted that Jimmy Page was the driving force behind that song. He had the riff, that was entirely his, and we were thrown into the studio and I needed something to sing and I didn't have a clue what to do. (laughs) And he'd attended a small faces concert and and remembered that song and really liked it, basically just ripped it off. When you hear <laughs> it, go check it out. And if you, listeners as well, if you've not heard it, go first to Muddy Waters' You Need Love from 1963, because that's the original version. And then the Small Faces did a, their own version of that, their own take on that, called You Need Loving, and that was 1966. And if you know, <laughs> if you know a whole lot of love, not the riff, but the vocal part is, yeah, it's uncanny, which I didn't know. I only found that out in in my research. So there we go. It wouldn't be a discussion about 60s music without Led Zeppelin. No, no. I know, um, should we have a, um, should we go around again? Should we have a speed round? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm up for that. Just because obviously there are a few artists that need to be mentioned, I think, and uh, hopefully maybe we, uh, in the next round, we get to cover cover them. Okay. Okay. Um, um, I've got two nominations here. Um, One is the band The Tornadoes. Famous for that tune, Telstar, which the Shadows covered as well. Um, yeah. And uh, they're still going. They're, they're, they're actually, I, I, I don't know how many of the original members are left, but they uh, they do still go around. Um, I know that. Um, and not a band as such, but I would just want to nominate this guy because he's probably overlooked as one of the best rhythm guitar players ever, I think. And that is Bruce Welsh from the Shadows. Um, okay. That, guy is an am- amazing guitar player like I say overlooked people always go oh hank marvin but bruce welsh needs um you know needs some big thumbs up because he's an absolutely incredible yeah. rhythm player so um yeah that's my two speed round over to you interesting okay. point about the tornadoes first yeah. british band yeah. to have a U- uh, u.s number one single ah that's good there you go that was the first ah, british single to go to number one in the states sorry chris um uh, okay well i'm gonna run with the who um this one is, uh, I've got two actually uh, from The Who, if that's, if I may. Uh, the first one being I Can't Explain from 1965. You know, the... Mm-hmm. Uh, just absolute classic sounds. And um, uh, the next one being from 1969, uh, which I think a bit like Led, Ze- Led Zeppelin with those two, two albums kind of took them into the 70s and created a new era of rock, I think. Um, and the, this song being Pinball Wizard. I don't have a, a an acoustic, but that... intro and obviously that came from um the rock opera tommy um which is um you know more of like you know you're talking about moving away from singles going into albums mm. you know there's the who's take and pete townsend for me is a, a massive idol and um yeah there's my nomination well done very good awesome awesome okay well I've got a massive list of <laughs> notable mentions, so I'll just cram <laughs> them in. Talking of The Who as well, what about... Mm-hmm. 
my generation. Talking about my. I mean, what tune? Just the the breakdown section where they all take solos. You've got Keith Moon. Oh man. And John at Whistle on the bass on that song. He's the driving Hell, force yeah. as well behind the behind that song. I, I know learned that the hard way when we did um, <laughs> Won't Get Fooled Again. I yeah. was like, yeah, I'll be up for that, playing bass. I was like, aha, hmm. <laughs> Lying underneath the surface of that song, Ent Whistle's playing. Oh, man. There's harmonics flying. There's like, oh, it's just crazy stuff. What was his nickname? Is it Thunderfingers or something? Yeah, he, he yeah. what a monster and what a unique sound. So just a quickie, if anybody's interested, he's he's got a book, oh, sadly he's passed, but he's got a book out um, called Bass Culture, and it's got all, all his guitar collection in there. Amazing book, if anybody wants to get that. Awesome. Yeah. I need to check that out. Okay, what about this one? Dick Dale. There you go. Yeah. Mizzaloo, 1962, coming yeah. out of the surf scene, but man, what a guitar tone. What yeah. a guitar tone. Amazing. Yeah. Um, all right, 1966. How about this one? I left off Clapton. I, I, cream, because I thought one of you guys would have done it. <laughs> That's exactly I thought Lee was going to run with it, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's just so much to cram in here. There's just so much good stuff. Oh, man. And look, I looked into this as well, right? Rolling Stone magazine, top 500 songs of all time. Okay, so this, well, of all time. They go back to the 1940s. 1960s wins it by a clear mile. You've got, of the 500 songs, 196 coming out of the 60s. So that's 39.2% of the vote. 70s follows with 131, and the 50s in third was 68 but yeah, 1960s winning by a clear mile. And also, interestingly, both number one and two on that list are from the 60s. I don't know whether it's anything to do with the fact they both mentioned the word Rolling Stone, but Rolling <laughs> Stone voted Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone as number one and The Rolling Stone's Satisfaction as number two. And for my final nomination, and it's a bit of a curveball, I need to pick up my acoustics, so just talk amongst yourselves. I could be watching Badgers right now. <laughs> are you are you are you uh, are you a nat naturist? Oh no, that's not right. Is Actually, it? naturalist. No, I'm a uh, I'm a I'm a naturist. I don't I don't know. What's the? Uh, one? I'm a big fan of um, big cats. I like lions and, and tigers and cheetahs. Oh, and yeah. I could watch them all day. I've got a little cat. I know, I know. Yeah, she's like she's like a normal cat, but a little bit smaller. She's really tiny. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, she's lovely. She's lovely. Um, but yeah, anything David Attenborough as well, man. I just I love all that stuff. It's just yeah. it's so interesting and in it. In it. I'm back. Oh, uh, to never mind. We don't care. We're talking about cats. We're talking about <laughs> wildlife now, mate. <laughs> <laughs> can you hear this? Does this work? Yep. I can hear your headphone cable on the strings. That's a great effect. Sorry. You know. It's not very professional, is it? Sorry, folks. Let's see. <laughs> Okay, so another big movement that was rising in the 60s was the whole folk scene. Mm. I, th I think we should acknowledge that there was a lot of good guitar playing that came out of that. And for me, it was this. Let's see if I can play it. Uh. 
Does anybody know what that is? I was going to run with uh, Joni Mitchell. No, I did say it was a no. bit of a curveball. I haven't a bloody clue. No, no idea. Some of those chords are interesting. I'm trying to think who, who would use some of those. No? Okay, so, curveball, that was Nick Drake. Nick Drake. And Riverman, which for me is probably the most personal of all the tracks because it's one of those albums. It's from his first album, Five Leaves Left, and it was re uh, recorded in 1969. An absolutely incredible album if you're into acoustic kind of English folk. But the undertones of particularly that song, I think, were massively influential for a lot of rock music to come because that is in 5-4. He uses open tunings all over the album. And that shift, so you've got ninth chords there. That shift that just subtly... You hear that kind of thing coupled with the odd time signature in a lot of prog music that followed and a lot of kind yeah. of weird um, proggy metal and stuff like that. And this was like an English folk guy. He was a reluctant performer. There's no video of him. Uh, he didn't have much success at all while he was alive. He died very young, tragically, of um, suspected overdose, but it could have been an accident, one of those things that we'll never know. But his music went on to just have a real cult following. And if you get into it, it's hard to it's hard to not kind of fall in love with it. So I would definitely recommend, particularly if you're into vinyl, try and get hold of a copy of Five Leaves Left by Nick Drake from 1969 and immerse yourself in some amazing acoustic playing. Is this why we haven't been able to get hold of you, Lee? <laughs> this is what I do in my spare time. No, actually, it is it is exactly that. That's an album that um, when I'm when I'm on my own, I really enjoy listening to that sort of stuff. And I do a lot of running, a lot of cycling and spend a lot of time on my own. And, and kind of when you're out there doing that stuff, that's the sort of music that I normally gravitate towards because it's I don't know, it's something very soothing in a weird, mysterious way about it. But makes you yeah. uh, ponder, uh, you know, upon um, self-reflection and, and stuff. It takes you into that frame of mind, I suppose. And Definitely. And, and there, there, are, there are hidden gems there and there are hidden works of genius, particularly when it comes to guitar playing. Uh, there's, there's lots of stuff online that said that Nick would obsess over his guitar playing. But you wouldn't think he was like, you're never going to see him showing up on a list of guitar heroes. But some of that stuff is, for me, well, just, uh, hard, I just saw harder to play there. than some of the Hendrix right. stuff. Just saying this, you got A major nine, A minor nine. Obviously, in a different key to me. What, what's your tuning, by the way? Because it sounds well. He lovely. played virtually every song in a different open tuning. He would just make his own stuff up, so all his chords don't make any sense in a conventional way. But um, that song is actually in standard tuning. But he he kind of treats it like an open tuning and hits things that you wouldn't normally hit. So it's just it's an A add nine, but he hits the the, the E all the time, and then you throw in the five four, so you get this. And then he starts singing over the top of it. It's like, huh? <laughs> genius, genius. So that would be my curveball, um, a personal nomination that maybe some of you haven't heard, but if you check it out, I guarantee you'll love it. Sounds to me like the mushrooms I've got in my fridge are the type that's going to get me into this music. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. What a nice note to end on. <laughs> Phil's <laughs> desperate to get back to his hedgehogs, you can see. <laughs> yeah, I'll watch it on catch-up now. Won't be the same, but... Uh, yeah. Well, well, I enjoyed that, yeah, as I good. think you can probably tell. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed yeah. that. I think I found it really interesting that we're we're still kind of finding our feet a little bit with this, and we're all like thinking, "Oh, I better not do that because Lee might do that one, or Chris might do this one." And that yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> it's good fun, though, isn't it? I think the fifties one that we did was was one of the episodes I enjoyed the most, and this one was um, was great. Not only the recording of it, but just going down memory lane. Well, not memory lane because I wasn't alive then, but you know, doing know the research. <laughs> no, exactly. You have to um, you have to apply yourself because you know you got to learn. It, you, you'd learn a lot from doing this. I've 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 learned so much from this already from just doing these two decades stuff. I'd never even realised, and obviously, I'm learning on this podcast as 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 we go as well. So it's um it's great. I'm really enjoying this. And what we got next time um, in a few weeks will be the seven uh, the seventies, won't it? Yes, yeah, we're going to come to the seventies in a in a maybe a month or so. We'll come back to this format and work our way through seventies, eighties, nineties. But next week, Chris, you're in the hot seat. So, what have I you am. got in store for us? Well, I was th- hoping to start a new series and in- involve a little bit more playing. I know we talk a lot, and um, but I want to touch upon our favorite guitar solos, our favorite guitar intros, whether that's electric or acoustic. And I uh, want to start reading these off. There's a few that I would like to play. And um, and also, there's some I really love, which I'm going to have to learn as well, because I want you guys to, to play these as well and get the tone and talk us through how you get the sounds okay, and, and stuff like that. I think it would be really interesting. That sounds cool. I'm up cool. for that. Sounds good. All right, then. Um, let's give some socials. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram. Just search for Phil Walker Guitar, Lee Troy Guitar, and Chris Anthony Guitar. If you want to find us on Facebook, it's Phil Walker Guitarist, Chris Anthony Guitar, and Lee Williams Guitarist. Or you can search for The Guitar Show. It's The Story of Guitar Heroes on Instagram and Facebook. You can head to the website, www.storyofguitarheroes, or you can head to YouTube and search Phil Walker Guitarist. I think that about wraps up 60s week. It's indeed. Well, it's been a a pleasure. So until next time, see you soon. See you later. Take care, guys. Small consolation, a bottle of port. I'm missing my winter watch. I'll be sat there now in my living room watching badgers and beavers.